Welcome to Made in the Hamptons. I'm your host, Jill Lawrence, and this week we have an amazing guest, entrepreneur Liz Lang, who is most famously known for the creation of Liz Lang Maternity, the first of its kind designer maternity clothing line that went on to become not only the most recognized name in fashion, but broke into new territory with mega brand partnerships such as Nike and Target. Adored by celebrities and stylish women across the country, the namesake lives on today. And despite selling the company, Liz continued on to even more success with women's clothing lines Apple's Home Shopping Network and QVC, and eventually acquired the indie fashion label Fig, which she has masterfully revived into a must-have fashion staple. We chatted about getting into the fashion business and becoming an entrepreneur, a fateful turn of events at Fashion Week in 2001, deciding to sell her namesake, buying and completing a three-year renovation of the historic estate in East Hampton known as Grey Gardens, and advice for entrepreneurs starting out in the world of fashion. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this week's episode, the Robert Allen Foundation, U.S. Trust, and Hampton's Air. When your heating or air conditioning needs help, contact Hampton's Air, a local HVAC company that provides personalized service and overall customer satisfaction. Each service tech is knowledgeable and can help you when you need it the most. Hampton's Air Mission will quickly become your number one choice for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Visit their website at www.hamptonsair.co or call 631-655-8120 and let them know Made in the Hamptons sent you today to receive $100 off any service call or maintenance agreement. And now, my very inspiring and insightful chat with fashion designer and entrepreneur, Liz Lang. You have a fascinating background. You grew up in New York City, attended Brown University. Was fashion design always in the cards? Uh, not at all. I, I, you know, I, I went to Brown. I majored in comparative literature. I like fashion the way that, you know, any, any, you know, I'd say young girl likes fashion. I like clothing. I like shopping. I guess I would say that, you know, I was sort of that friend who was kind of good at shopping. Like, you know, I helped my friends pick things and I, it can't taste and style. I mean, again, that sounds braggy. There's so many things that don't come naturally to me, but that came naturally to me, but no, it never occurred to me, especially, you know, growing up in the city, going to private school and then Brown, a, a career in fashion, to be honest, would have, I would have almost probably looked down on that. Like it would have not seemed intellectual enough or something. You know, it was something that evolved. After college, I got a job working at Vogue magazine, but really writing. I was not working in the fashion department of Vogue. I was, I was writing. Yeah, I thought maybe I'd become a writer. That's, I think, what one of the, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a terribly talented writer, actually. So you go to work for Vogue on to Stephen DeGeronimo. DeGeronimo. Oh, tell us a little bit about that history. So briefly, I discovered that, you know, I'm not loving it at Vogue. Like, I'm just not, you know, it seemed like the dream job. And it was, you know, graduated from college. But then I was kind of bored, not that, you know, questioning whether or not I wanted to be a writer or a magazine editor. And I met this young sort of struggling designer named Stephen DiGeronimo. It was in the mid-90s or early to mid-90s. And he had worked for Calvin Klein and Michael Kors, who were both very uh, important uh, designers uh, back then. And particularly Calvin at back then fell in love with what he was doing so much so that he said, listen, you know, I can't afford to pay you. It's just me and this other like his best friend from growing up who was his business partner. And I, was, I basically said, I don't care. I'll be your intern. I just 
you know, want to be around what you're doing. And that was my first true exposure to the real business of fashion is offices. And that's a grand word for it. We're in the garment <laughs> center. And I had even having grown up in New York City, frankly, I wasn't really that familiar with the garment center. I ended up out of necessity because there was no money and it was just the three of us. So I learned everything because I kind of had to wear every single hat. We all three did. So, you know, anything, sourcing fabric. I was the fit model. I was the fabric sourcer. I was in my 20s. You know, I was the, I would suggest designs based on things I liked. And it was while I was there and he was really struggling that I noticed because it was, you know, I was getting in my later 20s at that point, friends were starting to get pregnant. They would come to our offices and they would squeeze themselves into anything Stephen was designing that had a little, <laughs> truly, that had a little stretch in it. And stretch fabrics were kind of new back then in the 90s. I noticed. And so, you know, it was sort of like, they would always, I would say, what are you doing here? You should go to a maternity store. Why would you wear this? And they would also have this, they'd all say the same thing. Like, oh, you don't understand. Those clothes are hideous. They're so oversized. They don't look like anything I want to wear. And so I just kept hearing this over and over again. And I said to Stephen, you know, I think I have an idea maybe to turn around your business. Why don't you call your clothing maternity clothing? You don't even have to change anything about it. Just change the label. And I think maybe this is like a, you know, almost like a hole in the market or something. Like these women are spending a lot of money and they don't seem to have anywhere to spend it and they need clothes. They're pregnant and they need clothes. But he thought that was a crazy idea. Basically, everybody did back then. Nobody thought yeah. pregnancy was glamorous or interesting. It's very, That's very, true. very different. Yeah, very, totally different now. But it was one of those classic entrepreneur stories, although I would never have thought of myself as an entrepreneur back then or use that word. It was more that I found myself up every single night, awake in the middle of the night. I couldn't stop thinking about what maternity clothing could look like. And finally, I just basically went to him and said, I, you know, I, I have to do this. If you don't want to do it, fine, but I have to. And I did not consider myself a designer, but I felt that I could put together sort of a group of clothing just based on taste and style that that my friends would like. And that was really my only ambition at that point. I was at by that time I had gotten married. I was thinking about having babies. And I wasn't even sure that I would, you know, continue doing this after I had my children. I just something to do for a little while. The long story short, it just it took off beyond my wildest expectations. There's a lot obviously in there, but we would have to talk for hours. And so when I sold it uh, 10 years later, I started in 97 by myself and I sold it in 2007. And when I sold it, I think it was the largest maternity apparel brand um, in the US. So I oh, grew for sure. Here. Yeah, it grew, but I mean, from a market share, like a dollars and market share point of view, it, yeah. not just the most famous and the most popular, that for sure. So it really exploded and it was a really wild ride and a really fun ride. I've definitely been, was at that point bitten by the fashion industry bug. I guess I was when I first started working with Steven and I've never looked back and I've had a career in fashion ever since. And building that maternity brand took a lot of twists and turns along the way. I mean, you went on to sign some pretty important deals, including one with Nike. I mean, these, these collaborations were pretty unheard of at that time. Yes, they and, were and unheard you, of. Yes, you signed an exclusive deal with Nike to be their first athletic maternity line in August of 2001. And then you're prepared to debut it at, in September during New York Fashion Week. Describe to us the events leading up to that fateful day, because that collaboration was important, um, but maybe took a little bit of a turn. 
Yes. So that was actually a really crazy time. So I'm flying high. I've got, I started to open these high-end maternity boutiques, Liz Lang Maternity, because frankly, I thought I would wholesale my clothing line to stores like Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman's and Saks and all these other expensive stores, but they weren't interested. Nobody wanted was interested in the maternity business at all. So I was like, That's fine. That's so interesting, it's, isn't Oh it? yeah. They all turned me down. So I was like, fine. No one's going to get between me and my customer. I believe that women want these clothing. I will sell them. So at the beginning, I was selling just by appointment myself in a tiny office, but it grew. And I started to open up Liz Lang maternity boutiques because it was very successful. And yes, I, uh, Nike came to me very early on in a 99 and they said that they were, it's unbelievable. Now I was very young. They said they were a market research had shown them that they were struggling a bit with the trust of women back then their brand, and that they were looking for a brand to partner with that seemed to have the ear of women and that their research showed that was my brand. So I was in a state of Mm. shock. So we ended up doing, yeah, we ended up doing Liz Lang for swoosh, as you correctly said, was the first time back then that they had ever partnered, especially their their very, very, very important swoosh um, uh, logo. Yeah, with any name that was not a a major athletic name. So we decided that we were going to debut that collection and sort of tell the world, the media, the buyers, everyone that we were doing that via via New York Fashion Week. And no maternity brand had ever shown in the tents at part of New York Fashion Week. But I was planning to do that. And one segment was going to be Nike. In addition, I was in talks with Target uh, to do a whole maternity collection for them. Uh, That turned into a 20-year partnership that was very unusual as well, where I had their entire maternity department. Yeah. I mean, another uber successful collaboration, which was was for Target at the time too. Yes. Target. Yes. Today, everybody thinks of Target as Target and they think of them with all of these different designers coming in and out. But that was absolutely not the case back then. Absolutely not. No yeah. one had really, very few people had done it then. No Isaac, no, none of it. No Isaac was right. None of the early even collaborations had happened yet. And it was really more than a collaboration. It was a 20 year partnership and licensing yeah. deal, which is really different because collaborations imply like kind of you're in and you're out. So the to target, so a lot of the target executives were going to come to this show sort of to watch it. We weren't announcing anything, but it was a very important time in my life. I was very excitedly working towards this show. It was a huge deal. The morning of the show, show, actually, I had both the Today Show and Good Morning America. Again, back then, this was 2001. Back then, Good Morning America and Today Show, maybe they are today, but they were basically everything because we didn't have social media. We didn't have all this, you know, we didn't have nearly the same amount of things to view. So they each wanted to cover the show live. They decided to compromise. And uh, the Today Show, no, uh, Good Morning America was going to cover it live. And then we were supposed to go the next day over to the Today Show sets, recreate the show as if it was new again, just for them so that they could cover it the second day. But lo and behold, my show was at 9 a.m. And it turns out that it was at 9 a.m. on September 11th. It was crazy. I had September 11th on my calendar as the day that I was really excited about. You know, it was something I worked on all summer, working towards this show. Obviously, the planes hit during my show. We were actually the only (gasps) show and the last show and the only show that happened. It was really surreal. And it was these packed tent, so crowded, like a media circus, because they were excited about the idea that there would be a high fashion maternity clothing line that was very new. But I did notice and again, word traveled much more slowly back then we had blackberries, and we had flip phones, but we did not have iPhones. Um, And again, just the world was slower. But I did notice that CNN, who had had a TV crew there, covering me and a couple of others, I noticed that they started leaving in the middle of the show. And frankly, I was Mm. getting annoyed at my publicist from backstage. Like, why would they leave? Like, did you not tell them that they need to stay for the whole show? (laughs) You know, we had, we had, 
no idea. No one did. And, you know, we were shooed out of the tents and we were not even understanding why. Very frustrated being like pushed out of the tents at the end of the show, um, you know, walked into a world that obviously had changed forever. So that was a really crazy time and obviously not the way that I thought my Nike debut would go. That, But, you know, I mean, again, like not to be glib, that was, you know, absolutely horrible, horrible time. Absolutely. Of course, the Nike partnership did happen. And that was oh. a deal that did mm-hmm. happen. And, you know, that for five years, we sold Liz Lang for Shush at um, all Nike towns and at all Liz Lang stores. And back then, Nike used to have women's stores. They were called Nike goddess stores. And we sold mm-hmm. there, too. So that was a big deal. And then we also had our Target line that sold exclusively at Target on Target.com. My next question was going to be about Target. So it's the perfect segue, how important that was to the retail industry as well. Outside of your retail stores and everything that you were doing, that collaboration really changed maternity. So like I had my stores and that was, they were the clothing in there was expensive and they only existed in like Beverly Hills and New York City and a very expensive part of where I had a boutique in Long Island. But so many women started to wear what we called back then sort of the Liz Lang look, which was more fitted more streamlined. It was really exciting when I was able to bring that to target at a very different price point. Price point. And then, mm-hmm. and then it became, you know, accessible to women, you know, basically all all expecting women everywhere. And that's really what grew the brand. I always had my high-end stores and that continued to exist, but it was the partnership with Target, multi-hundred million dollars of sales that really propelled the brand to the next uh, level. And what made, you know, as you said, it kind of a household name because, you know, most women shop at Target. Very exciting. And it was great to be able to to do that. And we, as I said, we did it for 20 years. So it was, again, exceeded my wildest expectations. And it was really- Yeah, I'm not sure that- uh, Target has that many long-lasting relationships, except That's for like maybe in makeup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, in fact, uh, there was. I'm now again. I'm, it's like I'm having a brain freeze. But they have a very important partnership with a, a makeup artist that I've known forever. And now I can't think of it. Sonia and Kusuk. she was Sonia. Sonia was yep. there when I got there, and I'm sure Sonia is still there. Exactly. It's highly, highly unusual. And Sonia was a pioneer. You know, one of the earliest, yeah. uh, along with Massimo and Michael Graves. Then I was sort of in the right. second group. I came in with Isaac Mizrahi and Cynthia Rowley and a few others. And from there, they've gone on to do lots of little ins and outs. Even Isaac yes. and Cynthia's were only about a year or two. But, you know, the one that we had really worked and it ended up lasting. It outlasted even my, me selling the brand, you know, in 2007, the Target partnership lived on. And I was going to jump right into that. So after nearly a decade in the fashion business, you decide to sell a majority stake in your business. Tell us about that decision, despite everything, the growth of, of your brand approximation. Yeah. Right. So that was interesting. So it was 2007. And I found like the world all of a sudden, you know, it was right before the big crash in 2008. But again, we didn't know that. But so all but what we did know is it felt like this crazy bubble of so many people started approaching me about purchasing the brand. And they were offering crazy money for it. And I had a nine year old and an 11 year old at that time. And to Mm -hmm. be honest, I had spent really their entire lives working around the clock because people always say, oh, when you work for yourself, you know, you create your own hours. Well, yes, but like when it's your own brand, and you work for yourself, you kind of work for the toughest boss there is, you know, which is yourself. So I never turned it off. I was always on the road. I spent an enormous amount of time in Minneapolis where we had a big design studio for Target. I spent a lot of time in LA where I had a Beverly Hills store. I was just, you know, crazed all the time. And I really wasn't getting, uh, there's a lot of talk these days about women having it all and everything, but I, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, maybe not a popular view, but frankly, that's very, very hard to do. There's, you know, we're not super 
overpowered. I mean, there's actually only a certain amount of hours, you know, there's only a finite amount of hours in the day. So I actually think that's a myth and people should be saying that to him and it's not true. So I made the decision, which wasn't easy because my business was my first baby. And then I had my two children. So it was almost like I had three babies. It wasn't an easy decision. You know, honestly, it was also sort of that Godfather thing where someone made me an offer I couldn't refuse. It was, it was a (laughs) lot of life, you know, it was a lot of money, life-changing an opportunity to spend more time with my children. And so I took it. Yeah. I didn't expect to. I wasn't thinking about an exit. I didn't even know the word exit, but it happened. And then I went on and did other brands. So I went on. The, I couldn't do maternity anymore because I sort of sold those rights. The woman that was running Home Shopping Network at the time, Mindy Grossman, I knew her from when she was running women's at Nike from that deal that we talked about earlier. So she ah. asked me, yeah, so she asked me to come to Home Shopping Network and do a line, not of maternity clothing, just of well-priced women's ready to wear. So I did that for 10 years. I sold it on air. It was, we actually then developed the, we had our, we had the number one dress on Home Shopping Network. I also did it for Shopping Channel Canada and QBC UK. So I was quite busy with that, but not quite as busy. And then, then after 10 years, I was just sort of exhausted from all the TV selling because it's very intense. You sell all night long. It's, you know, okay. So it's extraordinarily intense and I loved it, but I was kind of done during the pandemic, a brand that I, I wasn't doing much. I was sort of investing in other brands and taking a step back and be more of an investor than an entrepreneur myself. But I was thinking about my next move and was I going to buy a brand or build a brand? build a brand or buy a brand. But at this phase of my, you know, it was just interesting for me, but at this phase of my life, I knew what it took to build a brand and it is, it's hard. And I'm not, I'm not so young anymore. It's not, you know, there are other competing interests. I heard that a brand that I'm a huge, I was a huge fan and customer of a huge, uh, this brand called Fig, which is actually spelled F-I-G-U-E, but it's, but it's pronounced Fig was for sale that the founder who I sort of knew, you know, that, that, that COVID had kind of done her in. She was just like, you know, I can't, you know, the fashion industry is, is tough and she was done and she was going to close up shop. And I said, wait, 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 you know, I really would love to own this and, brand. And she had she had freestanding stores. Was she doing wholesale too at that point? I mean, at that point, she what didn't stage have was she at? Yes, yeah, she had closed all her freestanding stores. Oh, honestly, when I bought it she had closed down the whole thing. I had to restart it all. Um, It actually went to auction and I went to that auction and I got it. But her business until she shut it down was no longer store. She, she was selling. It was mostly wholesale, like to great accounts that we have like Neiman's Uh and Shopop and Saks and uh, Porte and yeah, all these great brands. So um, all these great stores. So I acquired the name Fig. I actually rehired her team. That was two years ago. I've since mostly, you know, reshuffled that deck and have sort of my own people in place now, but it was really great and they were very helpful. Mm -hmm. And we got, you know, I spent the last year and a half basically getting that brand standing again. And now finally, I'd say with what we've just launched for fall, like it's not what the customers are seeing right now, because we're here in what, like um, this, we would call this spring of 2023. But Mm -hmm. we are from a, a fashion calendar, we are right now selling to the stores fall of 2023. And that's my first, in my mind, my first official collection where I've had my own creative director in place, my own merchant, my whole team. And so although we're continuing and honoring so much of what Fig had been, because I loved it. That's, you know, why I acquired it. It's almost like there was, I'm, there was a popular TV commercial of my childhood for, um, I think that was Remington razors. And the the owner used to say, I liked it so much. I bought the brand. And that's sort of what I did. I liked it so much. (laughs) I bought the brand or I bought the company. And so I, uh, but I do want to evolve it. Um, 
Big had always been known for its resort wear, its caftans, its, its dresses. And I love all those and they'll always continue. But we're also going to be really an all year round brand, like a brand that you could wear absolutely in the winter, a brand that you don't have to just be at a beach or on vacation to wear, but that you could wear in any city. So to make it, you know, more even of a lifestyle brand. Have you taken a different approach with this business than your prior businesses? Well, I guess I've never acquired a brand before. I've always grown them from scratch. So that's new. And we're really not, you know, the world has changed. So, you know, we're, we, we focus a lot on social media, on Instagram. We do have a store. It's online, but I view it as the same way I viewed my flagship Liz Lang stores. So, but that's sort of new for me in a way. So I guess in those respects, but I think the principles kind of remain the same and the same lessons I learned, you know, while growing Liz Lang probably apply. I don't know. Not really. Except maybe that it's more direct to customer now because that's just how we're the economy that we're built in a little bit more now. Yes. Like the whole, the whole, the whole quote unquote D to C like direct to consumer. That's sort of what I meant by this, the focus on a website. I had a website for Liz Lang maternity in the last few years, but it wasn't our main focus and it wasn't the way most people bought our clothing. You know, they were in stores, whether one of my own Liz Lang boutiques or a store that we sold to or a target. And that that's very different. Do you think you'll be opening freestanding stores again for, for big? You know, I do think about it. Um, I know how hard retail is because I've been in it, so I have no I have no illusions. Um, I do think about it, not in 2023. I still am very, very focused on the product, and I'm very pleased with our wholesale relationships and our D2C website. But it's definitely something that I think about as I look at the horizon, as I look at 2024, possibly. I live in New York City, but I spend my winters in Palm Beach. So here in Palm Beach, where I'm reaching you right now. And I spend my summers in East Hampton as per the name of your podcast. For instance, in Palm Beach, you could we have a store right here called Marissa that carries a lot of it. We've got another store called Hive. They carry a huge amount of it. So really wherever one lives, there usually is a store. Oh my God, and Saks. So there usually is a store, whether it's whether it's your local Saks, your local Neiman's or a boutique that does carry fig. But you're right. It's nice right. to be able to create the world of fig and have a store where we have complete control. So of course it's something I think about. It requires the right yeah. personnel. It, it's a lot. It's a lot. I don't think we're quite, I don't think we're quite there yet, but of course it's something that I think about. Before we jump into the Hamptons at Liz Lang on Instagram has a very large following. Tell us a little bit about that content and the inspiration for it. Yeah, that's been so much fun for me. So I think it's connected to everything I've ever done in my life. Like, so, you know, I was selling Liz Lang maternity personally myself to the customers at the beginning by appointment. And then even when we got big, I usually spent my Saturdays and my Sundays in my stores. I like that. I like the interaction. I also think it's very, very helpful. Helps me understand what the what's right and wrong with the product. Then I did Home Shopping Network, same thing. I was always sort of directly with the customers. I mean, I was selling on air. They would call on the phone. They, um, and I always kept my email very prominently available on all websites so that I could see customer complaints and customer compliments and whatever it was. So I liked that kind of interaction with people. So when Instagram, I, when I was thinking about Instagram for myself, I knew that I wasn't of an age, or maybe it's just me, where I wanted to be posting a lot of pictures of myself you know, eating different foods or at my home. It just didn't feel, it didn't come naturally to me to do that. I still grew up in a generation of more privacy in that respect. I wouldn't say I'm a terribly private person, but it just, it just didn't seem me. I started, Same. I, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like young kids, like whatever, like you don't need to see me in a bikini. You don't need to see where I live. Like, you know, whatever. 
whatever, like the whole thing. But so what I decided to do was, cause I'm not, it's not like, oh, but I'm so private. So what I did was I realized there were a lot of images that I love and Instagram is all about images. I mean, now it's more about videos, which I've kind of pivoted to, but it was all about images. So I, I started posting an image that I loved, you know, things that are on my mind. I have tons of Pinterest boards because I'm always thinking about them in terms of design. And so mm-hmm. I started posting images of people I found chic, usually famous people who I like their style or I like what they were doing or whatever it was. And then I would just use that as a jumping off point because I don't mind sharing personal anecdotes. I just don't love the imagery. So I, yeah. would, I would use the imagery of somebody else, like whoever that is. Let's say it's, you know, Catherine Deneuve in Belle du Jour or something. And then I would talk about Paris, time that I went to Paris or what that meant to me. So I keep my anecdotes and my my copy for my Instagram quite personal, I would say. And I try to keep it. My other thing about it is, I mean, I've been amazed by how it's taken off. I'm thrilled. I love that people like it. I assumed at the beginning that I would just get canceled. I really did. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, because I don't try. It's not universal. I understand that. Um, I really do. I'm honest about my own background in it. Um, you know, I'm just, I talk about places like the Hamptons and Palm Beach. I, I understand that that's not for everybody. But but, um, but I seem to have found a following and I, and I like to keep it very light. Like I find when I go through my feed and again, this is all personal. I'm not insulting anybody's feed. You know, it's all like you do you, but like, <laughs> I am not really interested in sharing my political opinions, my, I just want it to be, for me, it's just a refuge. It's just a place where I want to keep it. I used to say again, like I'm always quoting old ads, but light and lively, kind of like the old yogurt. Like I'm not looking to like have a serious conversation on Instagram. Like if I want to talk to you, you know, about something, I would want to talk to you about it privately on the phone, whatever. I'm not looking for that on my Instagram page. So I really try to keep it fun and I try to keep it positive. For me, it's really, I talk a lot about my childhood growing up in New York City and just, you know, in the 70s and 80s, because that's what's fun for me. And that's what I remember. And you're right. I find that, I guess the people that, you know, you find what you like. So the people that follow me tend to have also grown, you know, seem to be around my age or interested in those things Mm -hmm. too, even if they, doesn't matter where they grew up. The other thing that I have found so incredible and so nice that I've discovered through Instagram is that if people are around the same generation, it really doesn't matter the details of where they grew up or how they grew up. We seem to all have the same references, the same hopes and dreams and thoughts and insecurities when we were younger. So it's been this like very bonding thing. I absolutely love it. I spend a lot of time answering everyone's comments um, because I just really enjoy the dialogue. It's so great. Thank so you. let's let's talk about your time in the Hamptons. You've been spending time out in East Hamptons since childhood, and now you own an, a really iconic home that you've completely renovated. So tell us about your decision to buy Grey Gardens that is loaded with infamous tales <laughs> of wealth and faded glory and the courage to take on a huge renovation project. Yeah, well, let's start with I love this is where I'm again, I'm I'm really like weird. I love renovating and I love decorating. I would be a professional house flipper if my husband thought that if he would let me like, I, mean, <laughs> I like it. I think it's so much fun. So I love that the minute I'm done, I want to start again. So that doesn't intimidate me weirdly. I, I really enjoy it again, because I like taste and style. So it's just so much fun for me to do. You know, as you said, I grew up in East Hampton, I grew up, you know, kind of around the corner from um, the house I live in now very, very close by. But it it wasn't people always say when they talk about it now that, oh, I was this huge fan of Greg Gardens. I like the documentary as much as the next person. I wasn't one of these people that was obsessed with it, constantly quoting it. I didn't give it really much thought, to be honest. I mean, it's a it's a good documentary. 
very well done. Um, interesting. I did grow up in East Hampton, but I didn't really barely was aware of Big Edie and Little Edie. I, I you know, I that was not my world. I'm, I'm Jewish. That was a very waspy world. I, I didn't really know it. But I, what I did know from growing up was how much I remembered and loved sort of what they used to call, call it's kind of a funny word, but they called them like East Hampton cottages, even though they're really much bigger than cottages. You know, these old shingle style homes that are very, very indigenous uh, to the Hamptons that were typically built, you know, in the late 1800s, the early 1900s. That's what East Hampton looked like when I was growing up. It was not all these new houses everywhere. Um, not like that at all. So that's my taste in houses, but you don't see a lot of them. So Great Gardens was, was bought less for the, you know, the sort of provenance, although the provenance is really fun and really cool. It was truly that when that house became for sale, I loved the house. Like I love the mm. house. I love the land. I love the gardens. I, I understood exactly where, where it is. It's in on, on a beautiful, beautiful street in East Hampton. That and location it is, is. So, you uh, know, right. I mean, I mean beyond, basically yes. it's beyond. Like our back driveway could be the parking lot for Georgica Beach, which is where I spent so much, so much time. So it's, you know, in fact, our house, Great Gardens, sadly, you know, was a house that was so close to the beach that it used to be on the beach. At some point, an owner prior to us sold off the, you know, the the parcel of land that was actually, Mm -hmm. like we hear the waves are, are, the crashing of waves is is the sound in our, in our house, like outside. You really, you really can't get much closer to the beach than where you are. I mean, you're basically, right. (laughs) It's almost like being on the beach from our second floor and third floor. We completely have total views of the beach. So, so it's really that the house itself was somewhat, it was kind of the perfect situation. We bought it from a very famous couple also, Ben Bradley of, you know, Watergate and Washington Mm -hmm. Post fame and his, and his, well, we bought it from his widow, uh, Sally Quinn. It's also quite well known in her own right. So what they had done was really kind of perfect for my purposes. They had bought the house actually from little Edie in 1979. And they had done what I call a light renovation. They had cleaned it up completely. It was no longer great gardens. Obviously it wasn't like raccoons and holes, but they really hadn't changed it. In fact, they had even like put back a lot of the the original furniture. I mean, I guess they had cleaned it up. So I, what I was delivered was a house that needed renovations at this point. Uh, they hadn't done the, reno- you know, it had been what, 30 years since their renovation. So it needed renovations, but it hadn't been in my mind, quote unquote, ruined by anyone else's sort of additions or major changes. Mm-hmm. So we really said about it was three years, like a major renovation slash restoration where anything Sally and Ben had taken away from the original, we kind of found a way to, you know, doing tons of research to put back, but also to make, but also to modernize it and to make it a house that worked for my family, you know, our family in 2023, but still to really respect the house itself, especially because there's so many crazy fans out there. Um, it's unbelievable. <laughs> there, so, so, so yeah, so that's what we did. The gardens, the house itself, it was a, you know, it was a major, major, major project, but I, I'm very oh. pleased with the results and I love having it as our weekend and summer house, you know, irrespective of the fact that it also happens to be great gardens, which in my mind is just the icing on the cake. Exactly. And, and how has your background in design played a role in the choices you made when you were breathing new life into it? Did, were you working with the interior designers alongside of them making those choices? Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. So I had already, even by the time I hired people, I wanted a lot of different people's input because I wanted to be sort of the spoke 
of the wheel. Is that the word? Like I want it to be the center sure. of the wheel. Uh-huh. Yes. And then have lots of other people coming out from it. So I had like, a, when I mentioned Pinterest boards earlier, I had a Pinterest board going for every single detail of that house, every room, every piece of hardware, everything. But I enlisted the help of my one, my closest friend from actually from Brown University is still my best friend, Jonathan Adler, because he understands me. He knows how to channel my taste. I also mm-hmm. asked Mark Sykes, who's another uh, very respected interior designer, to help me. We had uh, my friend's Boris and Sharon, who are architects whose taste I really, really admire. Then we also had Ferguson, a Ferguson mm-hmm. Shamanian, to help right. us do it as well. So there were a lot of people. Then I got Deborah Nevins, who's a garden designer, to help us sort of reimagine and try to restore uh, the the, uh, the original walled garden. Brilliant. I mean, one of my but, favorite aspects of the of property is the gardens that she recreated are unbelievable. Thank you. They're really special. They're really beautiful. I, when you're there in the summer, it's a very magical feeling. You feel like you, you can't, you feel like you don't even know where you are. It's sort of, you know, you don't know, no other homes or noises encroach other than the sound of the ocean. It's very, very special. Yeah. So I hired a bunch of different, I guess I've called them tastemakers to work alongside me, but I didn't want it to be anyone else's house. Like I didn't want it to, you know, I use an old name of a designers who aren't even alive anymore. So it's not insulting to anyone. I didn't want it to be like, <laughs> Oh, look, it's a parish Hadley house. No, I wanted it to be my my taste, my vision, but with the, with I could never, ever in a billion years do it without major, major, major help from all the people uh, that sure. I mentioned. Too. Yeah, the sourcing and the detail in that house. Oh is my god! So, and yeah. and and even as I would, you know, and interpreting my taste and helping me get there. I mean, in in the biggest way. So that's that was sort of the the main group that we um, worked with. But we did a ton. I mean, we lifted the house. We created a whole another level to the house, a whole basement that didn't exist. That just you know, tons and tons and tons. We we made the the tennis court uh, is grass. We created a new pool, a, a pool and tennis house. The house never had a garage because it was so old. It had like a carriage house that they had sold off that was for horses and buggies. So we, you know, created the garage. So, you know, it was, it was a, you know, major, major project, but loved every second of it. So just in wrapping up, uh, what advice would you give to someone starting in fashion or starting a fashion business today? Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest things I'd say is instead of starting the business or don't start it until you've worked for another fashion designer or worked in the fashion industry. I think today's young people are also focused on having their own brand, their own business, that they don't realize how much learning could be done by working someplace else first. Like we all had Mm -hmm. jobs in my generation. Like if I hadn't worked for Stephen D. Geronimo, I couldn't have started Liz Lang Maternity. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. And let's talk about your mentors that inspired your business savvy. Is there anyone in particular that really led you to be able to make these big decisions uh, very early on in your business, quite frankly? You know, I don't think I thought of it that way. I didn't really have mentors because I didn't realize I was starting a big business. I was just, I mean, I sought the advice of a lot of people. Stephanie Greenfield, who at that point had this line of uh, this group of stores called Scoop. I sought her advice along the way. Jonathan and Jonathan Adler and I became mentors to each other in that we used to meet for lunch every single day. We had both started businesses. We were both young. We both found ourselves with successful businesses and were kind of surprised by it. And we were going through a lot of the same things. So we would have lunch every day and discuss business. And it was really helpful. My family was always a great support and always, you know, in my, I came from a family that had a family business, a very different one, but I, I was used to see, I get, there was, they were entrepreneurs, I guess, in that respect. So I was used to seeing that. Exactly. Exactly. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family myself and, 
people always say to me, oh, where do you get the ideas or where do you decide, you know, how do you decide to sell and so on and so forth. And it's almost like instinct because you've grown up around it and you take on these skills that you don't even know that you have because it's not textbook. It's you don't learn it in school. It's just instinctual almost. That's exact. I mean, literally, that is exactly it. And in fact, when I speak at business schools, which I haven't done in a while, I, this is probably why I always I don't really understand what they're doing at business school, because I you can't learn these things in a classroom. Like you just can't like I, I never really I don't get it. It's what you said. It's it's the instincts that get developed. You don't even know you know it from the doing from the having it around, you know, having it around you and doing it. Exactly. And what do you know now about being an entrepreneur that you wish you had known when you first started out 25 years ago? Well, sometimes I think I'm lucky that I was so naive that I didn't know, because I think if you know mm. everything, you would, you would never do anything. Like it, it would be very daunting because it's very, very hard. You know, uh, it's such a hard question because I genuinely feel like I'm glad that I didn't know that much. I feel like that's what that's what led me to be able to do things differently. That's what led me to have like an open mind to anything's possible, including the target relationship or. um, Right. You had the idea and you moved forward. Right. And I wasn't and I wasn't um, paralyzed Mm -hmm. by misconceptions or a conception. So in my mind, there's almost like this wonder. I think most great entrepreneurs are, you know, have a certain, uh, an outsized level of optimism and naivete. And I don't mean either of those things in a negative way, in the most positive way that allows them to believe in what, you know, will ultimately be very, very hard to achieve. So, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe if I, I just wish that I understood that those were all positives and I didn't feel insecure because I, I, I think they, they are. Yeah, I, I think being overprepared sometimes and this level of perfectionism that you have to have it right at your first go, not realizing that every business takes twists and turns on the way exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> many, many. That's my whole thing, even with business plans. Like I could write one, but I'm telling you, like no, nothing about it will come true because you just don't know. You can't know. So I like, I like that whole idea in business that you sort of yeah. can't know. Exactly. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And it was great to hear more detail about your story as always. And is Fig going to be in the Hamptons this summer? Um, that's a good question. I wish I knew that. I mean, I think the best way to find Fig is on Fig.com, F-I-G-U-E.com, because I don't know. And I also have a podcast about my own life story, and it's called The Just Enough Family, which people can okay. listen to wherever they listen to podcasts. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.